We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcasts. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined by my co-host Nick Bellato. And this podcast will be part two of our two-part mailbag that we drop in over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. By now, you've had your turkey. You've had your stuffing. Hopefully, somebody brought mac and cheese and didn't mess with it by throwing something like cream cheese into that into that uh, recipe. Hopefully, you had some sweet potatoes with the marshmallows on top, my personal favorite. How many bites of that can you have? A lot more than you'd expect. Really? Yes. Because I feel like that's something that, like, if you have too much of it, it's like, okay, I'm done with this. But, like, in portions, it's fantastic, especially on Thanksgiving. Respect that take, but on Thanksgiving, um, I have just an open hole of just shoveling food down. No, I want to ask— Leftover plates. No, I want to ask you one little thing about Thanksgiving before we get into those questions. Do you not eat in the morning, or do you—or how do you handle the the pre-Thanksgiving meal meal? Normally, I won't eat, Mm -hmm. but— you intrigued me by throwing out an idea that I might actually adapt for this Thanksgiving, and I might do a morning leg day before mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, thinking like, okay, I'm going to be able to get a ton of crap in here for my legs, some protein with the turkey. There's not really much protein besides the turkey when I thought about it in my head. Like, nothing else actually has protein. Just do a dirty bulk, have. dude. A what? Dirty bulk, dude. Just eat whatever. Yeah, dirty bulk. Whatever it is. Yeah, I just want mass in these legs. So if I'm going to squat 
if I'm going to do some step ups, I'm going to do some lunges, and I think I'm just going to do that and then have a protein bar, nothing else, roll mm. into Thanksgiving and let it rip. I would also have the little something before you lift. Okay, yeah. yeah. Maybe a little protein yeah, bar yeah. to get lift going. But yeah, I think that's what I'm going to do, Nick. Sounds good, man. Let's roll into some of these questions. All right, yeah. This Thanksgiving's over. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. We're going right back into the questions here with the Big Blue Bander Podcast. And Ahmed Atrabi, I hope I pronounced your name right. If not, I do apologize, says, don't you think the reason the offense has looked better maybe is because Joe Judge also got more involved with the scheme just like he did with the O-line? I think... There's, I think it's more for the offensive line, per se, to be honest, because the scheme didn't necessarily change all that much. They're still running a lot of power gap. They're still running a lot of counters. But I think the way Judge was teaching these guys may have helped just make this scheme more effective. It seemed like the double teams were a little cleaner. It seems like they were climbing up to the second level. But again, small sample size. And there was also the difference of Shane Lemieux. Now, I don't necessarily think Shane Lemieux's presence was the sole reason for this. I think Judge helping this offensive line definitely assisted. But it's also just maybe the offense is also coming together. So there, it could be a confluence of a few different things. But I don't necessarily think it was a scheme thing because the scheme was similar in, in other games as well with a lot of the power gap, a lot of the two pullers, a lot of yes. the counters. Yeah, I think in general, I'm a little bit more skeptical than most who have seemed to have taken it as fact that Judge has actually done anything with this offensive line. There's one report on it. I don't know how much he's actually doing. I think it's also possible that these guys are just playing better football as far as the line goes. I think as far as the system goes, I don't really, I would highly doubt that he has had any impact there. I think the credit belongs to Garrett, but I think the credit also belongs to Daniel Jones. And I think there's some context we need to keep in mind. Both Washington and Philadelphia, the two games that the Giants have found success in their recent recent two-game win streak, were playing more single-high looks and more defined looks for Daniel Jones before the snap that helped him after the snap. Now, having said that, he did seem to do better against the Blitz in those two games than he did against Tampa, who blitzed him insanely heavy, more than any quarterback's been blitzed this entire season. And that could be credit to Joe Judge for helping work with the offensive line. I don't know. It's really going to be impossible to know what kind of impact he really did have with those linemen. They still have to go out there and play. I don't know how much offensive line technique Joe Judge really knows or can like just magically teach on the spot that like gets completely taken and like applied in one game. To me, um, it's all seems a little bit I think fluffy. That, see, I think there could be tricks and techniques and sure. different ways of teaching things that may be easy, uh, more easy to understand yeah. for the kids for sure. And I mean, just uh, judging by. <laughs> intended for what uh mark colombo what, what happened with him there might have been some sort of disagreement there and then when he tried to bring in di guglielmo italian last name for sure that kind of led colombo another italian last name to just fly off the handle so maybe there was something something different that he was trying to instill on these guys that kind of built up through the weeks and then once googs got brought up led to the uh blow up from colombo yeah it's tough to know i don't think any of us but but i think ahmed to, to answer your point i i i'm i'm more more open to the idea of him improving and helping the offensive line than I am him working with the scheme that Garrett's running out there. Yes. Now we have Isaac Berman asks, realistically, what does Daniel Jones have to show you over the next six games for you to be totally comfortable going into next year with him as our starting quarterback? And which quarterback are you guys keeping an eye on? I think we already know the guy that uh, Dan is keeping an eye on. So Dan, want to take that? Yeah, well, he said as a realistic preferred replacement. I don't know if it will be realistic. I guess it would depend on a lot of things and if the Giants are losing games and Daniel Jones is not playing well they're being a better position to take that guy and that guy would be Zach Wilson for me the quarterback from BYU watch the kid throw it's natural arm talent that's somewhere between Kyler Murray and Patrick Mahomes I would say it's on that scale 
not Patrick Mahomes level. I don't think we'll ever see that. In my mind, I don't think I'll ever see that ever again. I, I literally don't think I'll see that until I'm dead. I really don't feel that way with Mahomes. But Murray, who has similar talent to Mahomes, no coincidence. They both played shortstop and they both played baseball and they have that kind of throwing motion that helps them throw from different arm slots and arm angles. Wilson has a lot of that in his game too. And he just puts balls on spots from crazy distances with what Nick has described as a flick of the wrist. And that's how I felt watching both Kyler on tape at Oklahoma and Mahomes on tape at Texas Tech and why I like those quarterbacks so much. You can't teach arm talent like that. And remember, when I say arm talent, I do not mean arm strength. Josh Allen has arm strength. He also has some arm talent, by the way. But Mike Glennon has arm strength. No arm talent. Arm talent is the ability to change the trajectory of the football based on where you need to put. And it's, it's a lot more about ball placement than it is about total arm strength. And throwing from different arm slots, throwing from off you know not so clean platforms and the ability to kind of throw throw your receivers open with anticipation but also just put it in spots with your arm and that would be my guy zach wilson as far as answering the first part of your question though what jones needs to realistically show me is more of what he showed against washington and philadelphia better post-snap processing that's what it all comes down to with Jones. The arm talent is more than I ever expected with Jones. This is enough arm talent to carry him forward as the quarterback of the future for the Giants. But it's not Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Kyler Murray arm talent. It's not. It's simply not, and that's fine. It wasn't supposed to be. So how does he get to their level, or not maybe if to their level, closer to their level? He wins with his mind. He wins by improving his entire process after the snap. He's already pretty good at reading defense before the snap, considering he's only a second-year player. You've seen him start to make audibles recently. You saw him move Deion Lewis into the flat, uh, I'm sorry, into the you know into the boundary and then run that route against zone when Deion Lewis was in the yeah, backfield. The Ohio concept. The Ohio concept on third and five. You see, start to see him do more of this stuff. But what you really want to see is more plays like the one he had to Golden Tate on that slot fade vert where he comes off the first read, holds the safety with his eyes on that deep crosser with Evan Ingram, and then flips his hips back and throws the ball in a perfect spot on the back shoulder fade to Golden Tate, realizing that he has the one-on-one there with no safety help over on top based on what he processed after the snap. So what do I need to see? Better decisions after the snap, less checking down to the easy solution before the snap. Yeah. So for me, Daniel Jones, if he just doesn't crap the bed, I think I'll be comfortable with him going into the third season and shake it as, hey, look, he can still progress. He's in this new system, this second system in as many years in the NFL. And that's kind of how I view Daniel Jones right now. If he kind of stays status quo, maybe shows a little bit, like you said, of what he's displayed against Philadelphia and Washington, I'll feel fine going into year three in his career as a New York Giant. Then we have Adam Johnson asks, okay, fellas, I have a Giants question this time. In free agency, if we fail to secure Allen Robinson and Kenny Galladay as a target, should we go after Corey Davis? I think he's a great fallback option. We kind of answered this last podcast, but for those of you who did not listen to that podcast, please download it and then listen to it. But for me and Dan both, I think we could say Corey Davis would be an excellent fallback option. Yeah, Adam, you're spot on. And Adam is longtime listener of the podcast, one of our earliest and most 
and our biggest supporter. So thank you, Adam. And the reason he says, okay, fellas, I have a Giants question this time because he asked a fantasy question. And I told him, if I read your question, my man, it might lead to a one-star review. We all remember the infamous one-star review from a month and a half ago. I don't even remember this guy's name. He didn't reach Kwame Zilla status where he's getting a shout out, but he said a one-star review for spending 240 seconds talking about fantasy football. So I won't go down that path again, Adam, but great minds think alike, Adam, because Corey Davis is definitely a target for me and Nick as well. And we talked about it last podcast, so if you do want to hear that analysis, Adam, and you missed it, check that one out. Vincent Medea, Vincente, sorry, Vincente Medea asks, with the recent firing of Colombo, do you guys think there's any possibility of Garrett being fired at the end of the season? I think that's a very strong name, by the way, Vincente. But what I'll say is I don't think Garrett's going to be necessarily fired, but I can see a parting of the ways if there is some sort of ideological difference between Joe Judge and what Jason Garrett wants to do. But I think a lot of it is kind of just media headlines as of right now. So I don't really think it's something that may happen, but I'm not in the building, so I can't give accurate analysis on the situation. Yeah, I think this stems from a colleague of mine, actually, Jason LaConfora, who reported that per his sources, the Giants may not be done making coaching moves. And I think what it ultimately boils down to, it's going to be so much less to do with the things that me and Nick analyze on this podcast, which is scheme, X's and O's, and play calling decision making, and more so to do with a lot of what we saw in the past when you know a coach like Pat Shermer makes a decision to hire Hal Hunter as his offensive line coach. Now, why did he do that? Because just like a lot of businesses in the United States, unfortunately, nepotism still plays or I don't think nepotism. It's right cronyism. Word. Cronyism, sorry, still plays a really big role. These guys want to hire their friends. They want people they can get along with, which is understandable. One of the main things I've been told by employers in the past is when you interview, when I've interviewed and it's gone successful, I should say, not all have gone successful. When it has gone successful, a lot of the reason is because you establish the baseline that you can get the job they want done, but you also need to be someone that they can work with and that they want to spend time working with. And I think if there is any kind of rift with Garrett based on the Columbo thing, which none of us know about or have any privy to, it would not shock me if they go in a different direction based on that and less on what Garrett's putting on the field. And I think that's fair as well. Okay, Big Blue Bobby asks, can Nick do an ad read in his best Billy Mays ultimate warrior game show host we need more diversity I could do the Billy Mays from South Park like hi Billy Mays here for another fantastic product but I don't have like the real Billy Mays voice and RIP to the great Billy Mays yeah I one of my biggest regrets Big Blue Bobby is that I'm not good at doing impressions I find that to be such a fun awesome skill to have I've always wanted to do good impressions I tried to do a Gettleman it sucks I try to do you know, I have some try some impressions I've tried in the past and they're just not there I don't know what it is it might be like that my voice is generally nasally and then I would think that I can do like nasal type nasally voice type impressions but I can't even really hit those so Bob Dylan, I'm a, I'm decent with, but I'm not going to do it. It's not good enough. So, yeah, Bobby, I don't think either of us are impression guys. No, no, not exactly. You know what, though? Randomly, I'll come out with one, and it's like, wow, that's actually pretty solid, and then I can never replicate it. And I can never be put on the spot. Are we it. talking solid like DeAndre Baker steal the ring solid? or in like So what you think is solid or what other people think I is solid? I never said the DeAndre Baker <laughs> ring thing was solid. You just took it, blew it up. You guys should have yes. seen his face. No, he was no. so proud. Absolutely he had not. three scheduled tweets going, and then he no. deleted them immediately. All, all of this is lies. <laughs> I don't know. And if these people don't realize they're lies, they're as dumb as you are with this <laughs> shit. I don't know. He's getting a very defensive for someone who claims to have not thought it was that good of a joke. I was a throwaway shit. All right. Will Ellsbury asks, okay, I have no idea what this guy is trying to say. 
<laughs> how do you play 99 from early position? Ooh, 99 a, he calls it. Uh, let's let's get to the question. How do you play 99 from early position in a three-handed J42 rainbow <laughs> flop with a total of 12 big blinds in the pot? And I have absolutely no idea. This might as well be Mandarin. I don't know what you're talking about, Will. So Will Asbury, friend of the podcast, real-life friend of mine. We play in a virtual poker game. This is a Texas Hold'em question. And what he really is asking is how do you play pocket nines from early position, which means you are close to the left of the big blind and further away from the button on a jack 4-2 rainbow flop that means no suits it's all different suits and with a total of 12 big blinds in the pot i assume will is saying 12 dollars in big blinds it would be impossible to have 12 people in a hand unless you're playing a crazy game of poker and i will say this will my friend who i compete against in poker a lot the competitor in me wants to tell you nothing here. The competitor in me actually wants to lie to you and give you the opposite half how I would play this hand because I don't want you to use this against me. But the friend in me will tell you how I would play this hand. With pocket nines from early position in a three-handed jack-4-2 rainbow flop. So I guess you are saying it's three-handed, which means the 12 big blinds, I guess you're playing $4 big blinds, 2-4 game maybe. So you're in three-handed. Your hand is good a lot when you have pocket nines and you're three-handed on a jack-4-2 rainbow, but the whole point of playing pocket nines is to hit the set, and the whole point of trying to hit a set is based on sack size. So if I'm playing with $100 and there's tw- and there's the blinds are 2-4 and I only have 96 behind me and you only have 95 and the other guy only has 93, this hand isn't going to make me much money. I think when you're playing pocket pairs, you're going for sets, you're going for the big pots. So I'm probably check calling in this spot, depending on the bet size by the opponent, and depending on if the other player calls. But I'm fine checking this through really to the river here. I don't see many spots for value. If I bet with 9-9 here, I'm not getting called by too many hands that are worse than my nines. I might be getting called by 3-5 in this spot, the up and down straight draw, but that's unlikely to be played pre-flop. Though it is check through, so the big blind or small blind could essentially have three five in this spot so you would be getting value from the three five or from the ace threes or from the ace fives of the world who are trying to call for the gutter with the chance to draw to an ace but i'm fine checking this one through yeah i (laughs) hoped people who have the knowledge of poker that i have skipped all of that (laughs) but if you did not let's move on to a giants question anyways harlan hugo asks you can only choose one of these in the offseason, okay? Option A, you sign Allen Robinson, re-sign Dalvin Tomlinson or Leonard Williams, and draft an edge. Option B, you sign an edge, you re-sign both Dalvin Tomlinson and Leonard Williams, and then you draft a wide receiver. Or option C, you sign Allen Robinson, sign an edge, and then you draft an interior defensive lineman. And I'm guessing with that, that means both Leonard Williams and Dalvin Tomlinson would walk. Yeah, it's a really tough question to ask, answer until we know what this edge free agent class is going to be like. But I will say this. I probably won't leave an offseason here trying to – or moving in the direction of thinking that the best option will be to let both Leonard Williams and Dalvin Tomlinson walk. We've seen the Giants fall prey to this idea in the past, letting Linville Joseph walk. He was one that they regret. Wasn't the only one, but one the one that comes to mind first – The best thing you can do in the NFL is draft talent, develop talent, and then re-sign talent because most of what ends up hitting the free agent market are the rejects that didn't (laughs) work their way into that exact process. So I think option C I would immediately rule out. I lean heavily towards option A, sign Allen Robinson, who I believe is an incredibly underrated wide receiver that's been held back by absolutely atrocious quarterback play. 
and I think he'd be an excellent fit for Daniel Jones's skill set and for what this roster needs at the wide receiver position, given what they have next to them. And then re-sign Dalvin, or I'm sorry, I am actually leading towards re-signing Leo over Dalvin right now and then drafting the edge. I will say this though, Adam made the mention of Corey Davis earlier as a sleeper receiver. I'm also intrigued by Curtis Samuel. I know he doesn't fit exactly what we think we want, but Samuel's been able to play the outside. If you look at Samuel's 2019 tape, when they mixed in Kyle Allen and Cam Newton for the first half, he was getting open vertically as a boundary receiver early and often. He had some of the best air yards in the NFL. They just couldn't hit him because the ball placement was so bad there from those quarterbacks combined. Samuel, I think, is one of the most explosive, underrated wide receivers and overall athletes in the NFL right now. I really do believe that he's been held back so much. And I think he can offer more options for your coordinator to get creative using him in the backfield. So him and Davis, I'm intrigued by as well if they strike out on someone like Robinson. But to answer your question, I have to pick one. I'm going with option A. For me, it's it's very hard, man, because I look at these edge class guys. You got guys like Shaq Barrett and Matt Judon and a bunch of solid players, but I'm not sure if I really want to invest like top money in guys like that or guys like Yannick Ngakwe, but I really want to retain Dalvin Tomlinson and Leonard Williams. And I don't necessarily want to draft a wide receiver high, but if it falls to the right spot and there's a right talent there, I'm not a, as opposed to it as I think you are, Dan. But I, I think I'm also leaning option X. I like the fact that you're drafting an edge, and I think I would have to re-sign Leo and let Dalvin walk and then signing Allen Robinson. But between option A and B, it is somewhat close. I had to debate it pretty heavily in my head. Brian asks, are you noticing Daniel Jones seems to be locking into wide receivers more this year than last year? Is this scheme-based? Am I wrong that that's happening? I thought Garrett's offense would make for more progressions, not less. I think it happened last year too, Brian, to be honest. I think he definitely locked on to receivers. I think it's uh, kind of something he needs to try to break away from. I think in the last couple weeks, two weeks that they won, he's done a better job doing so. But I don't think it's just reserved for Garrett's offense. I think it's definitely something that he's done. It's something that a lot of young wide receivers do you see kyler murray doing it sometimes i mean or yes. young wide receivers i mean young quarterbacks obviously 100 kyler murray does so it. so i think it's more of a young quarterback problem hopefully he grows with experience and that's what you're kind of hoping and that's what dan was referring to before with the pre to post snap reads and things like that he needs to clean that up still does need to get better with those types of things so i don't think it's necessarily garrett's offense uh indictment on his offense per se and i do think you make a good point when it comes to garrett's offensing offense supposed you know supposedly supposed to have more progressions because, you know, like we talked about, and it's the case, Pat Shermer had a more simplified offense for Dan Jones, a lot of half-field, high-low high reads. But regardless of how complex your offense is or how many progressions you have, if your quarterback is locking into what he reads pre-snap, it doesn't actually matter what happens after the snap. And in a lot of cases, and I think it's actually happened more in Garrett's offense, he is locking onto more of what he decides pre-snap because it's not as simplified. It isn't a half-field high-low read that he seemed to do really well with with Shermer. But like Nick said, even in Shermer's offense, he locked on there too as well, even in a more simplified offense. And at Duke, it was a ton. At Mark Schofield, we just had on the show, talked about watching his film at Duke. It was a ton of get the ball out quick to what you see before the snap. It's going to take him a while based on the system he played in in Duke. And this was also the case, by the way, for Murray at Oklahoma, which is why Nick brings up that point. Now, the difference is Murray can win in a lot of different ways. Unfortunately, that Daniel Jones can't with his legs as a runner, but also just with his pure arm talent that, you know, we like Jones's arm talent, but it's not that level. So sometimes he can get away with it, but you're right. It is a problem for young quarterbacks. And specifically, I do think Daniel Jones, um, it is an issue for him. Yeah, and Daniel Jones also has legs, but like if you watch Kyler Murray play, it's just like a it's a totally different thing. He seems like the quickest and fastest guy on the field. It's yeah. it's pretty awesome to watch. 
Yeah, so Zach Mahoney asks, why do we never see Daniel Jones scramble to throw? Whenever we see him moving to the design rollout or an RPO, we see Murray, Wilson, Watson do it all the time. Defense bites hard on a QB run, and someone always ends up being wide open. Why not DJ? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I feel like Garrett has done, I guess, an adequate job of calling some kind of bootlegs and rollouts. I guess they can do a little bit more, but I think Daniel Jones tries to to flow with the pocket a little bit more than kind of trying to break away and do the whole scrambling thing. Like he, like we've kind of knocked him on the podcast a little bit in recent weeks where he does the Sam Darnold thing where the pocket could be okay, but he's still drifting and drifting and trying to wait for his receivers to kind of cross into the voids of the zones and then hit him on those kind of things. I think he could do a better job probably rolling and then threatening with his legs like you're mentioning, Zach. Yeah. But he just hasn't really done that. And I don't really have an answer as to why he hasn't. I mean, I, I feel like Garrett has called some play-action bootleg uh, type of plays, and then usually he'll have the high-low read built into it with the backside receiver and the backside tight end kind of running too deep crossing routes, and then like the play-side tight end blocks, 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 and then releases, and he's a check down, and it's usually Caden Smith, and we've seen that happen a couple times this year, but those plays never really materialized too much. So, I don't really have a, a concrete answer as to why it hasn't necessarily worked, but those other quarterbacks are different cats than someone like Daniel Jones, and they're much better at extemporizing kind of and playing um, playing under chaos than Daniel Jones is. Yeah, I think Nick nails it. Those guys are better at playing under chaos and doing that. If you notice, when Daniel Jones breaks the pocket, he almost never breaks it left, and when he breaks right, he almost never breaks by doing what these guys do. The reason these guys are able to kind of scramble, roll, mostly to their right as well, by the way, and then throw that open receiver who breaks open with time is because they step into the pocket before leaving it to their right or scrambling right. What Jones likes to do is move backwards and right. So as he's flowing backwards, it makes it a lot more difficult to make that throw. And Mahomes actually, I think, does it even better than any of the guys you mentioned by the way, even though he's not known as a speed guy. Watch how he scram- when he makes these broken play throws, watch how he does it. He'll step up into the pocket, kind of in that void where the right tackle is is where the, you know, the edge is pu- where the right tackle's pushing the edge up the arc. And then he'll first step up into it and then go to his right. So he's kind of moving along horizontally, laterally with the line of scrimmage, instead of backwards like Jones does when he rolls to his right. And Jones almost never breaks pocket to his left he just drifts to his left so yeah it's 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 a jones thing i think is the, is the short answer there i'd say so okay rapid fire questions from jay dodge one of our longtime listeners i think he was the originally the guy you can tell me if i'm wrong about this jay dodge that said that you listen to this show sometimes in your kitchen with your young son around so please don't curse and that made us feel really bad about cursing and we think we've done a good job of eliminating curses from this podcast but let us know if that's not the case so because it's rapid fire we're just going to answer one word only nick so you give your answer and i'll give mine first question does nick ever play back his ad reads not really i have no idea second question who is the number two running back next year might be some draft pick gallman Third question, who do we root for on Thursday? I assume the game will have already been played. Washington. Yep, Washington. We recorded this before the game has been played, but Washington. Four, what is actually different techniques Colombo got fired for not teaching? I mean, I wouldn't be able to say this in one word, and I'm not really 100% <laughs> sure what the techniques are. No idea. Yeah. Five, Chance Garrett is back in twenty in 2021. I think there's a solid chance. 99%. For me, I wouldn't say ninety nine. I would say probably like yeah, true. eighty. Weird coach things going on with yeah. Judge and Garrett that we don't know. Eighty is probably safer. Six playoffs, yes or no? 
I, I think I'm going to say no. No, for me as well. Christian Herrera asks, Judge got involved with the O-line a few weeks ago, and you guys watch all 22. Did you notice any differences with the O-line that led to the improvements we've seen on the field the past few games? And do you believe that Coach Goose could be an upgrade? I do believe Coach Gooch could be an upgrade. Gooch? Yeah. Do you think it's Well, yeah, he says Gooch, though, and I'm just going to roll with it. <laughs> yeah, Gooch. Yeah, the Gooch. I think it could be an, an upgrade, especially if the technique was so poor beforehand, like Judge seems to uh, suggest. And what I would say is just the cohesiveness of the offensive line seemed to be much better through those games. Like I said earlier, the double teams were much easier. I felt like every time there was a double team block, there were four eyes on the second level and then one of them whoever had the the advantageous angle would transition upward towards the linebacker and once you get those double teams established it's so significant to the front line of your of the blocks of for your rushing game in general and when you can climb up to the second level and locate like these guys have been able to do in the last couple of weeks it just really puts those alley defenders and those safeties into such a stressful spot and that has been something that has improved since judge reportedly has been working with the offensive line so i would say that i think the hands have been hand usage has been somewhat i guess you could say a little bit cleaner and definitely footwork with andrew thomas specifically yeah i mean i think where it's most noticeable to me is Andrew Thomas. There's been some talk that we can't confirm or deny that he's gone back to more of the technique he used at Georgia, and maybe that was a case of, you know, Colombo comes in, he wants to put his mark on being the offensive line coach of the New York Football Giants in his first, you know, not his first, but a really good opportunity for him in his career, and he tries to retangle and re <laughs> redo the f- everything that goes into playing the left tackle position that Andrew Thomas is going and it's like we've said it's kind of like riding a or not riding a bike like serving a tennis a, t- a tennis ball or like throwing a baseball you or throwing a football you can't always retool what you've learned and what you've grown accustomed to as far as technique goes so all of that could be in play and I think it's definitely possible it's hard for me to say any of this with certainty without being in that room same here yeah but as far as the tape goes like Nick said it's much cleaner it's just much cleaner. Was that just them getting better? Was it right. judge? We're not really a hundred percent certain sure. on that. Big Guevara asks, "What do you think? What do you think about a weak side linebacker as a first pick?" Yeah, so you must, of course, be referring to Mika Parsons, the off-ball linebacker from Penn State who opted out of the season. Draft crush of so many who evaluate his tape. This dude is an absolute freak. Actually, entered Penn State as an edge and has since converted to off-ball. I feel. Like, he could be such a sick, awesome piece for, for a Patrick Graham defense. Just so fun and played in so many spots. I am a little weary of taking an off-ball linebacker early. I ultimately don't know if the Giants will even be positioned to take him. But off-ball linebacker is usually not where you go with your first pick. I mean, unless you can kind of locate, like, Luke Keekly. Yeah, I mean, Devin White's been a really good Devin pick Devin White's been a pretty solid pick for Roquan them. Roquan Smith's been up and down up a little bit. Up and down, bit. yeah. And I think he's actually a better prospect than both of those. And I like Devin Bush a lot before the injury. Devin Bush is a very solid one, yes. So I'm open to it. I know it's kind of like, you know, NFL, the old NFL book is you never take a guard early, you never take a center early, which I disagree with, by the way. I'd rather have both of those positions, a guard or a center, than a receiver, for example, because I like to build inside out. And I think in today's NFL, off-ball linebackers are coming way more important, especially athletic ones like a Parsons type. So I'm open to it. 
And like you said, I do think the the fit with Patrick Graham would be something that would be awesome. And could you imagine not having that liability of like a David Mayo? Having out Blake there? Martinez and Micah Parsons on the field for third downs would be insanity. I it, would love to see it that. It would be, but again, we have to wait a little bit. So um, then we have, let's see this. Joey LaFaro asks, if Garrett gets axed, what style offense, who do you want as the new offensive coordinator? Joey, you can correct us on this, but I feel like it's Joey LaFaro. And again, if Nick gets another Italian name wrong... Well, this was the Italian name that I got wrong. And did you say LaFaro the first time? I don't remember. It's likely that he got it... Imagine if he gets it wrong. I mean, this is supposed to be the Italian guy on the show. Is what it is. When a Jew is correcting you, when a Jew is connecting Italian pronunciations... This is the same conversation we had the first time. probably the same time for the last mailbag, Joey. So thanks for tuning in and coming back at us. But this is a great question. Um, For me, with Daniel Jones at quarterback, I would like an offense that is based off play action passing similar to kind of what arthur smith runs up in tennessee play action vertical is how i will describe this a play action vertical passing game yeah i mean i would also like the quick game that he's quick game simplified reads like he had somewhat with pat Shermer as well because he had success with that so, yeah half field high low i'm down for that again i'm always down I mean, for that those are in every playbook though half, yeah. half field high low like jason garrett has half field high low as well it's just that it, it seemed to be a bit more um inside with uh Pat, uh, Pat Shermer, and more, more for more four verts, more vertical concepts. I would like more four verts. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I always want. I'm team all more four. You verts. You need the blocking for that, and thankfully it's stabilized for sure. Yes. Okay, Chris Ruggiero asks two questions. Although it's a low bar, O'Shane Ziminens should return and immediately be our top pass rushing edge. How much of a boost? If any, do you expect him to bring to the defense? I think he'll definitely bring a boost to the defense. Now, I hope he's better against the run, though. That's always been his Achilles heel as a player. That's why he played somewhat of a limited snap basis, especially in his rookie season, was because he couldn't hold the edge. And if we know anything about Patrick Graham's defense, you need to be able to hold an edge and be a force defender if you're playing edge. And that's something that O'Shane has struggled with, so I hope he can improve on that. But on third downs, I think he can definitely add a lot of value and be the top edge rusher on this team i'm in wait and see approach especially since he's playing not at 100 in my mind the rest of the season so i'm still in wait and see approach on that one how about this one though julian love chris chris ruggieri asked was a player hyped up by fans and beat reporters prior to the season however this season he has turned out to be little more than a rotational safety what do you make of his role and how do you view him long term next to peppers and mckinney I think Julian Love, this is, what, his second year playing safety. This is his second defensive system. He was drafted. I think James Betcher loved him and wanted to move him to play safety, and now he's kind of a carryover into Patrick Graham. And I think he's, I think he gets knocked by a lot of Giants fans. I don't think he's been terrible as that single high safety. I think he's been fine. Yeah. I think that's what he'll be. He's going to be the third wheel with Peppers and McKinney, and we'll see, as we talked about on last podcast, if McKinney's going to be the one to play the single high role now if that's the case then julian love's going to be rendered to a rotational type of role because that's what he's been he's been that single high safety the majority of the year sometimes i'll drop him in the box do different things that's what patrick graham likes to do but he's going to be the third wheel i think no matter what if mckinney is right yeah and i think nick brings up a good point a lot of times we view these things as black and white but it's not black or white when it comes to love there is black and white. You want to know, and let's say in this scenario, we're using white as the failure. You want to know what that looks like? Go take a look at some of the film of Bethay last year. Go take a look at some of the film of Darian Thompson, CeCe Brown, some of these safeties that have played that deep half for the Giants over the last 10 years. 
And Love, while he isn't playing it phenomenally, he isn't taking this massive leap that maybe some of the beat reporters um, suggested he might and that we originally thought when they drafted him. Me and Nick were both big fans of the pick mm-hmm. from a value and talent standpoint. He may be coming into his own learning position, need more time, but he's also hasn't been a major liability, especially as a tackler, which in my opinion is always so ridiculously underrated for that deep half safety role. I've seen it too many times. The Giants can't tackle at that third level with the Thompsons, with the Browns, with with Bethay wasn't as bad at that, but there were others throughout their past. His angles were just <laughs> But his angles terrible. were terrible. If you're curious about Julian Love and you have to ask a bunch of questions, just ask yourself, you want to know what love is? And then you'll figure out the answer. <sighs> Uh, I'm speechless. I'm speechless. I'm doing these on purpose now, Dan. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, I I hope you guys enjoyed that one more than his ad read. The ad read. Oh, this ad read is gonna be is gonna be pretty solid. And it's if, gonna be I'm a solid not mis- ad read. if I'm not mistaken, I think it's about that time. Yeah. So without further ado, let's take a quick break to hear Nick slam his voice into your eardrums. It's not that bad. <laughs> Twenty twenty has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly, so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time. And there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire, all one word. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire, all one word, offer valid through December 31st, terms and conditions apply. Thanks to a lack of natural athletic ability or commitment or overbearing sports parents, fewer than 1% of the 1% of the 1% of people will ever play professional football. But instead of entering the NFL, they've joined another league, the League of Football Watchers. This football season will be different, and Pepsi is here to get you ready for game day no matter how you watch. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes, you know, you just want to crack open a nice Pepsi, chug it down as your team is winning and as the Giants keep entering winning streaks. That's something that may entice you. Because Pepsi is the refreshment you need to power through any game day. Because Pepsi isn't made for those who play the game, it's made for those who watch it. Stan McCune asks, the Colombo firing seems to have largely been slept, swept under the rug. Should we be concerned about it? Does it show immaturity on Judge's part? Does it indicate maybe he isn't good at hiring a staff? Or is there a silver lining that he didn't waste time when a position group wasn't performing? Well, the reason that Colombo was reportedly let go was because Judge wanted to bring in DiGuglielmo, and then when he broached the subject to Colombo, Colombo freaked out, causing an argument and basically undermining the head coach at that point to where Judge had to get rid of 
Mark Colombo. So that's, I guess, the whole story. But it, it's hard to say if it's an immaturity thing with Joe Judge because I don't necessarily, we don't know exactly what ended up going down. And as far as hiring a staff, I'm pretty sure, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dan Colombo was brought in by Jason Garrett. That was a Jason Garrett basically hire, where it's like you can hire, Judge was like, you can hire your own offensive staff, but I have to over, you know, oversee it and approve it. And Mark Colombo came over from Dallas, as we all know. So I don't necessarily think it's an indictment on Judge's ability to, to hire a good staff. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's an indictment on his ability to hire good staff. I'm not sure if it shows immaturity or any of those things. I don't think it should be as swept under the rug as fans have made it already. And it seems to be this like common acceptance. This is such a great move by Judge and mm-hmm. the Giants. I don't know if I see it that way. There's been reports on the other hand that Judge was critical of players like Andrew Thomas and film and Colombo was sticking up for them and that the players actually really like Colombo and playing for that, Colombo. That could be bad if that's true. Too. And if that's true, that could go a really bad direction. I know what the Giants have tried to do, and that's control the narrative. And so we can subscribe to that. It might be right, but I'm just never a total guy. Uh, you're never going to have me be the guy. There are podcasts that will do it, but you're never going to have me be the guy that just buys into the company line every time he hears it. So I'm not sure on this one, Stan, but I think ultimately it should be fine here. I think Googs has good experience as an offensive line coach, and I don't think ultimately they're losing out too much on Colombo. I think a lot of what he had success with in Dallas was just based on the talent that he was coaching, yeah, to be completely honest. Um, and a lot of it's scheme, too. Why are the Giants' offensive line winning? Because Jason Garrett's designing some good run plays that are really working as the O-line starts to gel. And that's on Garrett. He's designing the run plays. You know, he's designing that zone read game with Daniel Jones. Absolutely. Okay, Christopher Ryan asks, what are the odds Matt Pert is the Matt Pert is the left tackle of the future and Andrew Thomas flips to the right side? I don't think left tackle or right tackle requires different skills, but rotating in Pert, Pert at left tackle makes me wonder what the Giants' plan is. I think that it, I think a lot of Giants fans are just accepting that it's going to be Andrew Thomas, and I'm I'm open to it actually being Matt Parrott and Andrew Thomas being shifted to the right. But with that said, I really don't have an, uh, a great beat on it. I think if Andrew Thomas continues to progress, I think we're going to find him on the left side. But if he did continue to struggle, and Matt Parrott did show a lot of signs of development on the left side, I don't think Judge doesn't seem like he would be hesitant to make that kind of switch or that kind of flip. I know it might be deemed a downgrade, but I don't think Judge would really care about that i think he would make that move if it made sense but as of right now i don't necessarily see it yeah i think you nailed it nick i think this coaches have shown they're not afraid to ruffle feathers or you know hurt people's feelings by moving positions and rotating an offensive line which is not common having said that i ultimately don't know if in today's nfl it really is this big of a difference between left tackle and right tackle that it used to be and that this common narrative kind of assumes it to be I think both sides face really good pass rushers, and sometimes the better pass rushers are coming at the right tackle, depending on the matchup. So maybe you can make the case with a quarterback like Daniel Jones, it matters a little more because he has had a tendency to not feel the blindside pressure as well and to fumble on some of those that are game-changing fumbles. So yes, from that standpoint, maybe it does make sense to get the better player in there. But I think what Nick said is right. There is no set plan for this right now. It's evolving, and they're going to base it on the film and base it on these guys' development, which is the best way to do this. Yes, yes. Kevin Donahue asks, Can Evan Ingram put on weight to become a better blocker? I know his route running will be affected, but by how much? Would it then be worth it to keep him long-term? It's an interesting question. Um, To me, Evan Ingram's issues as a blocker are frame-based. And when I say frame, I don't mean he's too light. I mean, his specific frame cannot carry that much more weight. I don't really see where he's going to put the weight on. 
without affecting his role as a receiver. I don't think just adding 10 pounds to that body is going to make much of a difference as a blocker. He's not a very wide tight end, if you want to call him a tight end. He really has a receiver's body. And like when you don't have that that width, it's really tough to block, in my mind. I hear width's very important. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's important for a lot of things, but in this specific football reference... I'm not sure he's ever going to be the blocker, regardless of what he does in the weight room. I have to agree with you 100%, Dan. And I also think just adding weight to him is just going to take away from what this offense and what this coaching staff loves most about Evan Ingram, and that's yeah. his ability to make plays. So I don't I don't envision that happening. And like you said, I don't think it would necessarily make him that much better of a blocker because that frame is just too narrow. Yeah. John, and then Kevin says, would it be wor- would then be worth it to keep him long-term? That's an interesting question. Ah, uh, okay. So, well... Uh, again, I, I, I kind of don't think the whole add 10, 20 pounds or whatever is going to necessarily make him a better blocker. Like we already no, he's articulated. Saying if he doesn't, yeah, 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 no, but it kind of correlates into yeah. the, the question. Would it be worth it if he did get better as a blocker? I, the whole Evan Ingram long-term thing, I just think another team is going to put a higher price tag on him and his ability to be a receiver and a playmaker than the Giants probably will. And I think he'll end up walking because of that. Now, I, I think you look at some, some teams that might be ready to make real pushes at the Super Bowl that will look at his skill set and value him at his current age. So I think he's going to end up walking that way. I, I'm not really totally sold that by adding weight that would uh, make make him more attractive for the New York Giants long term. But with that said, man, like I want to ask you this, Dan. It's kind of a part of Kevin's question. Do you think the, Gi- do you think the Giants are going to look to re-sign him anyways? I think he is a part of their long-term plans as of now. Yeah. Um, but that can change so moment to moment. And as far as if that's worth it to keep him, if he's never going to become the blocker, I I struggle with it. I don't know really. I think he would have to show a lot more game-changing ability, which he has in the past, but I think he'd have to do it more consistently for it to be worth it because you lose a lot when you have a guy like that lined up in line, in my mind, especially when you're, like you said, that this team is still consistently running a lot of 12 and 13, and they want to be this type of team. And when he's part of your 12, it's just not helpful for you in the run game at all or as a pass blocker. Um, Not that you would want Evan Ingram doing that. So it's a tough one for me. I don't know because this team doesn't have many playmakers, but I think playmakers are easier to find than people get than people realize and they're very fleeting they change a lot and you can find them in a lot of spots in the draft less on free agency but in the draft so ultimately for me i would lean towards him not being worth it but it's hard to say right now absolutely john g asks um where is the disconnect on early down running between analytics crowd and nfl play callers coaches just too old school to embrace the numbers or is there more to it that's a great question, John. It's a really good, nuanced football question, and I think there is a big disconnect on these early run on these early downs with analytics and NFL play callers who've been doing this for years. Man, like you got to understand, they have the job now as a play call for a team, but they've been coaching at certain levels, both in the NFL, maybe high school before that, maybe college before that, different jobs quality coach you know quality control coach maybe they were a coordinator calling plays before maybe they weren't and I think a lot of it is that coaches want to establish a physicality and get themselves away from kind of the game plan we saw on Monday Night Football where Tom Brady's Bucks were throwing dropping back to throw 51 times and by the end of that game the Rams were just teeing off as pass rushers and getting to him every time and he was Throw, he was forced to go off of spot to make throws, made some bad reads because of it. 
And so I think ultimately they still want to try to get to that point where they can kind of get ahead of the sticks and get themselves into third and reasonable. But I just think there's better ways to do it. As you obviously know, I'm not a subscriber really to running. I'm definitely not a subscriber to ever choosing a run play on second and long. On first and long, I'm open to it. I don't like it. I think there's a lot of ways to throw the football for four to six yards in the NFL. There's a lot of really, really easy ways to throw the football for four to six yards. So if you're not getting a lot of these 25 to 50 or whatever it may be run plays from your run game and it's a lot of two to four you have a much better chance to hit a higher ceiling when you run plays that let's say have a half field high low read where you have a four to six yard route that's easy to get but you also potentially depending on what the defense shows post snap can hit a big play by calling the pass play on first and 10 or on second and 10 and so overall for me I obviously don't subscribe to it you know that but why do I think that you know there's this disconnect I think it's just that one reason they want to establish establish the runs one way to say but they want to establish a physical type of style of offense really also teams like to control the clock and keep their defense on the field to keep other teams offenses off the field that's another reason why coaches really like to pound the rock and impose their will and if you do it successfully you you could see you could just absolutely humiliate uh, an opposing team and an opposing defense yeah Okay, he also at John G also asked, any guess as to why Flores would let Patrick Graham make the lateral move to New York Giants? Can't remember a Giants coordinator getting more from less in any recent season. Was this just a miss by Miami? I think Brian Flores probably has his hands in what the defense does a little bit, and Patrick Graham probably had a really good relationship with Joe Judge, and then when he found out Joe Judge got the job, he was like, hey, I would like permission to make this lateral move, and Flores granted granted him that ability because there were other coaches that were in that pipeline that Flores trusts to be the defensive coordinator. So I think it was probably like a, and obviously I don't have any inside knowledge, but it's probably a, a mutual thing between Patrick Graham and Flores. That's a great take, Nick, and I think that's spot on. We obviously don't know for sure, John, but I think that's the best guess anyone has at this. And that would be that with Patrick Graham working for Brian Flores in Miami last season, Brian Flores is a defensive coach. He made his way as a defensive coordinator. So he has his hands in that defense. It still could be a lot of him. He still might want to have, he still might have had a lot more responsibility than we even know last year with Patrick Graham. And Patrick Graham told him, look, I have an opportunity to go work for Joe Judge, who I have a relationship with and who has no interest in putting his hands in the defense. He's given it all to me. This is a great opportunity for me, man. Like, I'm going to get to run this defense fully. And I'm not saying any, you know, not knocking you for not letting me do that over here in Miami. I get it, man. But I'm going to get that opportunity there and I won't get that here. So I think that's a great take. And I think that could have played the role in it. Yeah, yeah. And then David Pascal asks, would love to hear you reminisce a little bit and go back to the decision to let Coughlin go and keep Jerry Reese. I want to hear your full take on the causes of going from winning the 2011 Super Bowl to the disaster of the last four seasons. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'll, I'll answer the, unpack this one backwards. Full take on going from winning 2011 Super Bowl to this disaster of the last four seasons. I'll say this. I've said it before and I'll say it again. In some ways, that 2011 season, that Super Bowl, was smoke and mirrors by the Giants. They had Eli Manning playing out of his freaking mind. He was the M- he deserved to be on the M- in the MVP conversations that season. I've said it before. They had PFF's number 32 dead last ranked pass protection that season. Two of the worst performing tackles in the NFL that year. They had the 30th ranked rushing attack on offense, so they had no run game. Teams could fully commit to the pass game on defense. I believe they were they finished the season ranked 31. Did those pass rushers come alive in the postseason? Sure but they still had deficiencies everywhere else on that defense heading into the postseason and after. But 
Eli made up for it. And I won't just give all the credit to Eli. It was a combination of Eli Manning playing out of his mind, Eli Manning playing in God knows what year that was of Kevin Gilbride's offense and just being on a perfect page with the receivers. Remember, that Kevin Gilbride offense was run and shoot, it was vertical base, but it was also a lot of option routes. So the key thing to that offense always was no injuries at wide receiver. The minute injuries happen at wide receiver, that's when you saw all those weird interceptions from Eli because there were option routes and he hadn't worked with these receivers. But all those guys stayed healthy that season. Akeem Nix, Mario Manningham, Victor Cruz, and they ran so much 11 personnel to take advantage of it. And then they also had Boss at tight end for that. Or no, that was the ba- that was the Ballard. Uh, sorry, my bad. Boss was 2007. They also had Ballard at tight end, who was better than expected that season. And he could play that one role in the three-by-one and just however they lined it up. And so I think the roster wasn't really that good in 2011 at all. And why did the disaster happen? Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again, Jerry Reese had an outside-in drafting approach. He consistently poured draft picks into receivers and tight ends who can't block like Travis Beckham from Wisconsin, the worst Wisconsin player to ever join the New York Giants. And yes, that includes Ron Dane. I still think Beckham was a worse pick somehow. And nah, he wasn't actually because Dane was a first rounder. But having said that, that outside-in approach of building the skill players and never really, I mean, this dude, Jerry Reese, went into a season one year with Eric Flowers and Bobby Hart as the starting tackles and didn't do anything about the position. He signed Brandon Marshall in free agency and then didn't draft one. I mean, the minute he won a Super Bowl, where literally the tackles were the worst two grade in the NFL that season, number 32 in pass protection, Giants finished in 2011. He drafted a running back in the first round. So, it's a combination of a lot of things. And, and a as far receiver as, in the second round. And a receiver in the second round, Ruben Randall. So combination of a lot of things. As far as the decision to let Coughlin go, I'll go back to your first part and keep Jerry Reese. Yeah, we, you know I'm with you on that one, David. I never liked the decision to let Coughlin go. And choosing Jerry Reese over him was crazy. I think a, a big part about the Coughlin letting go thing was the timing of Ben McAdoo. Because if we remember, yes. Ben McAdoo meshed very well with Eli Manning. Eli Manning's completion percentage was up. It seemed like the two were working great together and then everybody was calling for Ben McAdoo to be the head football coach for their team and specifically the Philadelphia Eagles they interviewed Ben McAdoo and there was a lot of rumors that Ben McAdoo was going to go there so I think the Giants hand was kind of forced there and it was like okay maybe the writing's on the wall to let Tom Coughlin go he's getting a little bit older maybe the time has run out kind of like Andy Reid in Philadelphia time to kind of move on to the next chapter so let's just give Ben the whole job and then the rest is kind of history. Yeah, and it's a good point as far as McAdoo, because you have a follow-up. Was the 2016 playoff on with McAdoo a mirage? I remember Eli playing well enough to win that playoff game as Packers. He definitely did. Eli had a great individual yes. game that game. But in general, I think the whole McAdoo idea was a mirage because although at first it seemed like a good thing and Eli's stats looked better on paper, if you dig back to those two seasons where McAdoo was coordinator, a lot of those were garbage time stats. The Giants defense was one of the worst in the NFL both those seasons, and they had no run game both of those seasons. And ultimately, I actually think McAdoo is the reason Eli had such a bad end to his career. I think it reprogrammed his brain in the way he processed defenses, and I don't think Eli Manning ever should have been that kind of quarterback that takes a shotgun snap and hits the slants flats every time and doesn't process the defense. He was always much better, Eli, when he was in Gilbride's vertically based offense where he could take shots down the field off of play action seven and five step drops with max protect that's the type mm-hmm. of quarterback eli manning is and i actually think that's a good spot it's a good quarterback for daniel jones even though it's not what he worked with in duke it's not what we had what he really did with Shermer, and it doesn't seem on paper like jones's best fit 
because he hasn't had experience with it from a skill set standpoint what Jones has from arm talent level and from athleticism in those play, in the play action game I think he does a really good job selling it and I think he's good on the drops I think he, that's actually the best fit for him as well but more on that another time and I think you know Garrett to some extent brings that brings that as well yeah, I think we should have realized the whole McAdoo fiasco when he showed up to his opening press conference yeah. looking like he was in the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or some shit. That was absolutely insane. That suit was embarrassing. Ah, uh, yeah, it was pretty bad. All right, we got a question from Guacomoto. Should Gettleman draft Travis Etienne with the number two overall pick? Dan, what say you? I think he should actually trade up for number one. You get Travis Etienne. For those of you who don't know, Travis Etienne best running back in college football some might say he was touched by the hand of god (laughs) they can envision him in a gold jacket at the end of his career they saw that tape against i believe it was duke where he was jammed at the sideline and found an incredible juke back into the field of play and he knew when he saw that play on tape this is this by he i mean dave gentleman that it was time to make the play and so yes i do believe they should draft travis etienne the running back from clemson I would probably make sure you trade up to one just to make sure you can get him. Um, but yeah, I'm on board with it. I think that's enough said from Dan. <laughs> ben Husband asks, hypothetically, if the Giants end up with a top three pick, do you take a QB regardless? I'm of the opinion you should always punt on QBs. Really? I think I'm not of the opinion always that you should punt on QBs. Yeah, what does sh- that even mean, Ben? I don't share that opinion, uh, Ben, specifically. I would just need the context of what, like, if Daniel Jones gets hurt and we end up in the top three, then that's, like, a different kind of story. So I would just need the context as exactly what happened there. And it's also interesting, man. Like, I, I'm wondering with these quarterbacks how much of a haul you can get in trading if you did own the number three pick and you had all these quarterbacks on the table except for obviously Trevor Lawrence so I, I once draft time rolls around we'll really dive into the sticky wickets about that kind of stuff yeah that's a good point Nick if the Giants do falter in these next six games and ultimately have a top three pick and they're not going to take a quarterback they better sure as hell work the damn phones and get a trade oh, they man, better, man. They, better. they better trade for I mean yeah last year for some reason there was no interest in Herbert or Tua so they weren't able to pull it off but they better do it this year man and as far as do you take a QB regardless? No. I think the answer to that is a definite no. You only take a QB if you think he can transcend the game and have the arm talent or whatever. It believe. I believe you should lean on arm talent. Other people will believe on other things. Um, I mean, in the past, I've leaned on other things. My, my worst evaluation was Josh Rosen, and that's not an arm talent evaluation. With Rosen, it was all the other things that I thought he did really well. My best evaluations, Mahomes and Murray, in my mind, were the opposite. They were arm talent that transcends the game and can get you out of a lot of tough situations so that's funny too because i actually think and i know this is very unpopular to say right now josh rosen showed some impressive arm talent at ucla from the standpoint of touch and things like that and i know a lot of people are like oh well it didn't work out yes but if, let's go back to when he was drafted a lot of people were saying that and i also saw it on film too he just had Colton yeah. miller as his left hand the guy was beat <laughs> up like crazy and it didn't work out in the nfl for a lot of reasons because it's hard to make in the nfl and it's damn hard to play in the nfl oh no no he definitely had arm talent i just didn't think yeah. it was murray mahomes oh level okay, okay or yeah. zach wilson level. absolutely absolutely yeah. but he he was more to me he was more just i thought oh my god this guy can immediately step and be in a rhythm timing thrower just immediately yes yes just immediately awesome rhythm timing thrower and he ball placement was great people want to forget those takes but those are takes that we had and I'm yeah fine, and i'm fine with that i'm fine with that. i'm fine being wrong yes. on rosen there are reasons rosen didn't work out but if you watch the tape there's a reason why a lot of us believe that he was going to be the real deal um but yeah i don't know what always punting on quarterback would look like ben i don't know where you would get your quarterback or how you would get your quarterback but i definitely would would probably not subscribe to that one your next question though you have two and we'll get them both in what's your opinion on how to build the d 
Is outside in the future, and does it show how outdated Dave Gettleman's attitude to roster management is? What I'll say is my, my opinion on building a defense is just from an identity standpoint. I don't think you necessarily have to build outside in. I think it has to be a collaboration between the coaching staff and the front office to get the players that they find necessary to plug into their specific systems. And I know that's kind of the roundabout way there. I, I just I don't think it's necessarily like, okay, we need to get this. I think... With that said, I think you kind of always need a really good cornerback, at least one good quarterback, and you want to be able to stop the run, which is something that Dave Gettleman's obviously put a precedent on. He's done a solid job building that specific roster. But I I do believe that it has to be a collaborative effort. It's something that I've always preached on this podcast. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I'm moving to the future of pass coverage over pass rush. I've been in that direction a long time watching as teams move, but I also think there is value of of having a good solid point of attack because you look at some teams this year like the Cincinnati Bengals for example and I think I hope we'll see it this week they are just so poor at the point of attack that it kills them in every game so I think you need a little bit of both but as far as edges versus top corners go I'm actually starting to lean more in the direction of, of those shutdown corners all right and we're on to our last question so last question of this mailbag from our friend Jack Nagori. Looking forward to the draft, does it scare you guys that three of the top projected picks sat out this year at positions we need to address, specifically Chase, Suell, and Russell? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Jack, because I think everyone's going to be thinking about that. It's going to be a weird draft with all these opt-outs due to COVID. These guys are going to, we're going to have, and the fact that we're probably not going to get the normal offseason as far as free agent, or I'm sorry, draft private visits go draft private workouts pro days who knows if those are going to happen maybe they do they say the senior bowl is going to happen but it's going to be weird and none of these guys anyway these opt-outs are going to be there so a lot of these gms are going to have to base things off of 2019 tape because they won't have 2020 tape for me it doesn't scare me i'm assuming these guys are pros and they're going to be you know they got to be the best of the best or prospect wise that by working on their craft and not being lazy so i don't think they'll be out of shape or anything like that um, and I think you just got to trust your film and you got to trust the interviews you're going to be able to have with these guys and how they would fit your system and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to be scary for everybody involved this year because this specific draft year, even more so than 2020, it's going to be so different because you don't have the pro days, you don't have their senior bowl, you don't, you might not have the combat. We don't really know what's exactly going to happen. Whereas last year, the pandemic started you know, through the draft process where we already had the Reese's Senior Bowl, the Combine, and we had an entire football season to rely on. But to just really address your question, I don't necessarily think that these three sitting out necessarily scare me. You're just going to have to trust the process as much as the process has been altered. And every NFL team, all 32, have to deal with this. Trust the process, baby. On that note, Thank you again for tuning in. We hope you all enjoyed this mailbag, the special mailbag for the bye week and had a great Thanksgiving. As always, if you want to help us grow the show, if you want to help us build the show, give us a five-star review and rating on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at NYBigBlueBanter. You know where to find us on Twitter where we will talk to you nonstop, all day, any day. Hit us up. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you soon. Football is back in full swing. And you might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, 
BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, divisions, and championship futures all day every day. Head to BetOnline online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com